We return this morning to James chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. We read the text and began our study last week. Lord willing, we'll read the text and complete our study of 1 to 7 next week. Here we are, James chapter 2, 1 to 7, for the second time together in this text. My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respective persons. If you emphasize the word not and you emphasize the word with, you'll have the most straightforward understanding of that English phrase. For if there come unto your assembly a man with a gold ring and goodly apparel, and there come in also a poor man in vile raiment, and ye have respect to him that weareth the designer clothing, gay clothing as it's called in the king's English, and say unto him, Sit thou here in a good place, and say to the poor, Stand thou there, or sit here under my footstool. Are ye not then partial in yourselves, and are become judges of evil thoughts. Hearken, my beloved brethren, hath not God chosen the poor of this world rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he hath promised to them that love him? And the expected answer is, yep. Verse 6, but ye have despised the poor do not rich men oppress you and draw you before the judgment seats? Do, they, do not they blaspheme that worthy name by which ye are called? And the answer, of course, is yes, they do. Yes, they do. Father, help us as we pick back up in the thought of this text to understand the necessity that the gospel be understood as open and available to all people and that the foot of the cross is indeed level for us all. Thank you for those that are here to hear. Bless and we pray in Jesus' name and for his blessed sake. Amen. The Lord Jesus went up to the prescribed Feast of Tabernacles, even though he was under threat of death by the religious authorities in Jerusalem, as recorded in John chapter 7. Before going up to that feast, John records the interaction between the Lord and his natural half-brothers, born of Mary and Joseph, after he was born of the Spirit of God. Four brothers named, including James, Joseph, Jude, and Simon. James and Jude, we know more about, because those half-brothers wrote Bible verses, or Bible books, uh, after a period of time. But John 7 tells us of a time when they, those half-brothers, James, Joseph, 
uh, Jude and Simon, did not believe in Christ. That is a definitive statement of the Apostle John as recorded in John chapter 7. Our Lord's interaction after that interaction at home uh, with those hostile authorities in Jerusalem and the unbelieving crowd gathered uh, for the Feast of Tabernacles includes an admonition from the Messiah's mouth that is absolutely applicable in the Messiah's own home and absolutely applicable in the city of Jerusalem and, we would say, absolutely applicable in the company of saints gathered here today. The Lord's admonition at that time was, quote, judge not according to the appearance, but judge righteous judgment. And that statement of our Lord stands in great contrast to James chapter 2 and verse 4, where one of those half-brothers of the Lord, who in the context of John 7, were judging Jesus by appearance and not with righteous judgment, now says to us in James chapter 2, verse 4, don't be like that. Don't you do that lest you become judges of evil thoughts. It's like a dad saying to a boy, to his son, Son, I would desire that you not repeat every stupid thing I ever did when I was your age. And here is James, the Lord's half-brother, saying to God's people, Please don't do the stupid thing I did. You learn to judge righteous judgments. It is 15 to 20 years after the account recorded in John 7 that James, our Lord's half-brother, and more importantly now, of course, believing brother and servant of Christ, writes to the Jewish Christians scattered by opposition and persecution concerning the dangers of their judgmentalism. We learned last week in James 2 that sinfully or that sinful partiality was a real problem in the assembly of those scattered believers. The place of favoritism being shown, or if you will, the place of judgmentalism in fraction was within the ranks of God's own people. This kind of sin was not only a real problem among those early Christians, but as Kent Hughes says it, favoritism can be chronicled throughout church history and in our own experiences. The Jewish believers addressed were advantaged in that they had knowledgeable insight to Old Testament law and precedent. 
that was absolutely, as we saw it last week, uh, uh, clearly forbidding partiality and judgment among the people of God. As we saw it last time together, James addresses the matter of partiality or favoritism within the ranks of God's local church. He addresses that in light of the preeminence of Jesus Christ, in the light of Christ's glory, which we said at the end of last week is indeed Shekinah glory. Believers are not, chapter 2, verse 1, not to hold faith with respective persons. 2-1. In the excellent little book by Jerry Bridges entitled Respectable Sins, there is a whole chapter that is designated to the subject of judgmentalism. He writes, the sin of judgmentalism is one of the most subtle of our respectable sins because it is often practiced under the guise of being zealous for what is right. It is obvious that within our conservative evangelical circles, there are myriads of opinions on everything from theology to conduct to lifestyle to politics. Not only are there multiple opinions among us, but we usually assume our opinion is correct and associate our opinion with the truth. Listen, listen, there is a big difference between my opinion and God's truth. There's a big difference between your opinion and God's truth. And we have not come together in this place at this time to share our opinions. We have come together for the truth of God. And I do believe that just as James, in a pastoral sense, knows how appropriate it is, that God's people learn to judge not by appearance, but with righteous judgment. So I would say to you that this is a time ripe once again for us to hear our Lord say, judge not according to the appearance, but judge righteous judgment. I want to return this morning as we pick up at the thought of the preeminence of Christ, in the church as yielding the principle out of which this entire appeal is made, chapter 2, 1 to 7, and even really more than that, chapter 2, 1 to 13. Again, look at that first verse. My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of person. Grammatically, the main verb is have not. This present imperative is understood to mean that the believer is not to possess and is to keep not possessing. Don't possess it and don't ever possess it. Uh, don't do it and don't ever do it. Present imperative. 
uh, as it relates to possessing your faith, the faith, article specific, not a faith, the faith, the faith of Christ, along with respect of persons, or if you will, favoritism. Faith in Christ? Yes. Favoritism? No. If we read the first verse without its augmented phrase, you grab hold of it a little better. My brethren, have not the faith with respective persons. That's the point. That's the main thought. Have not the faith, have not your faith in Christ with, accompanied by, respective persons. Again, the faith, not a faith. The faith of our Lord Jesus Christ. We might say it otherwise. As a believer, you must not possess your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ along with partiality. And it's talking about partiality in fact, not just feeling. Do I have favorite relatives? Yes. Do I work to let them know it? No. Do I have favorite relatives? Yes. Do I work the ones uh, to let the ones that aren't favored know it? No. Do I have favorite church members? Yes, I do. Uh, uh, should I let it show? Absolutely not. Do I sneak around with them behind the scenes? No. Do I hang out with them in times of, uh, of, uh, of luxury and times of holiday and times of fun and engagement? No. Uh, I, I limit myself uh, to work in such a way so that I try to present myself to be exactly the same for all the people of God that come here. So that I, I, I would not be so foolish to say I don't have a favorite. But I will tell you the fact that I don't let my favoritism show any more than, than, uh, uh, than what it does show. And uh, when it does show, I'm always disgusted by myself. Because I know from the Lord it should not show. Should not show. Pastors should not have favorite members. Although they are certainly going to honor the ones that are faithful. And that sometimes can be hard. But I'll straighten that out in just a moment here for you in the scripture. In the King's English... You can note that the words, the Lord, in verse 1, have the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord, see it, are in italic. The Greek phrase literally rendered is, the faith of Jesus Christ, the glory. Certainly is the Lord of glory. But again, the word glory here is held in App position to the term Lord, not op position to the term Lord. That means that Christ is the glory. Christ is the glory of God. And that's why we printed for you last week in the bulletin that little translation of Kenneth Weiss, who said, My brethren, stop holding your faith in our Lord Jesus Christ the Lord of glory in connection with an act of showing partiality to anyone. Isn't it good to know that the Lord is giving to us a practical demand that we can easily discern, uh, as it were, our obedience? 
He's not asking us how we feel from time to time. He's asking us what we do with that feeling. This imperative of not holding the faith of the glorious Lord with partiality dominates the text, as we said, not only 1 to 7, but 1 through 13. And so we have packaged the truth of James 2, 1 in principle form for our understanding and obedience. And when we do such, it comes out like this. There is a way to live that is consistent with the glory and the shine of God our Savior. We that name the name of Christ are expected to live that way. We are to live in such a way that the glory of Christ is manifest among us. This supra principle is herein then applied to the sin of judgmentalism or partiality. Do not hold your faith in the preeminent Christ in connection with any form of partiality. Faith in Christ? Absolutely. Partiality? Absolutely no. That's the thrust of the text. Now we convey the biblical principle often, uh, for it is uh, central uh, to the overriding presentation uh, of the New Testament scriptures. There is a behavior befitting to a believer. There is a behavior befitting to a believer. There is a behavior, even among men, befitting to a man holding military office. And many an officer in military engagement has been charged with actions or behavior on becoming to an officer. You and I need to understand that there is a behavior that is befitting a child of God. There is a lifestyle and a conduct consistent with those who confess Christ. James says, gospel embrace is incompatible with partiality of any kind. And that presents to the thinking believer a sense of puzzlement. There is especially in our modern world a popular way to think about impartiality that is totally erroneous. I speak of the error represented by the letters DEI, standing for the worldly concepts and definitions of diversity, equity, and inclusion, as is being propagated in many governmental agencies and in 
big business today. Now, we're not interested in those worldly concepts and definitions, but rather in the biblical concepts and definitions. And in order to grasp the biblical truth and the imperative of no partiality, as we find it here in James, I want to look uh, briefly at how it is that a believer, even a mature believer, uh, could be a little confused or puzzled by such a strong demand of absolutely no partiality uh, whatsoever uh, shown in the context of the local church family. And I've represented for you uh, how that puzzlement is further played out in Scripture uh, by putting two Scriptures uh, side by side, Romans 12.10 and 1 Timothy 5.21, both of which have the word preference. And in the first uh, case, as we will just see in a moment, it says have preference. And in the second case, it has the emphasis don't have preference. Uh, that reminds me of one of the things that used to happen when I was a young preacher, and it used to just drive me nuts. Because I would preach a sermon on a text of Scripture, and I would share the truth of Christ in a particular regard, and afterwards, as people were coming out the door, uh, somebody would greet me with, yeah, but. And then they would quote some Bible verse, and quite often they quoted the Bible verse correctly. And yet the Bible verse that they quoted in some way could be understood to be an absolute contrast and, and uh, opposition to the thing I just preached. And I used to hate that. And when I was really young, I used to think, oh, no, I preached it wrong. I, I didn't study enough. I didn't do enough. I, I don't have it mastered. And then after a while, I began to realize the fact that there are a great number of biblical truths that are on a clothesline between two poles. Here's the fact, and here's the fact, and here's the truth. Here's the fact, and here's the fact, and here's the truth. And when you say to people, don't be partial. When you say to God's people, don't be partial. How do you live that way? So uh, you, uh, you have your own, your own kids or you have your own grandkids with you. And you go to the ice cream shop. And uh, as a dad or a grandpa, you want to treat uh, your family uh, to uh, uh, some ice cream. And as you stand there uh, before the case of all the different kinds of ice cream and you begin to have the kids line up uh, to uh, uh, tell the gal or the guy behind the counter what flavor they would like, all of a sudden into your mind comes this verse of scripture that as a child of God, you are not to be partial of any kind partial. And just that moment, somebody pulls up with an elementary school bus, and in comes 30, 40, 50, 60 snotty-nosed beggars uh, that uh, are all there for ice cream. Does God demand that you buy a single dip cone for them all? No. 
you are perfectly legit to show loving preference to your own family, to your own grandkids. What James is talking about is not some kind of quasi-partiality that operates in every circumstance in all the world. And so there's a puzzlement, there's a line of tension that comes with the truth of partiality. And we're going to use the word preference to illustrate that puzzlement. In Romans 12.10, Paul tells believers to be loving and preferential toward other believers. Be kindly affectionate one to another with brotherly love in honor preferring one another. Not only is it legitimate in many circumstances for me to show my preference for my own biological family, but it is absolutely God's demand that I show preference for you as the family of God in this place. And you are under demand of God to show preference one for another as believers in the Lord. So you preach that sermon and you get everybody to understand it, and then somebody comes out the door and they say to the preacher, yeah, but. And the yeah, but comes from 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 21, where Paul says to Timothy, same guy speaking, same apostle, says, I charge thee before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that thou observe these things without preferring one another, doing nothing by partiality. On the surface, it seems that God would have us prefer one another and then not prefer one another. Prefer or prefer not. Yep. That'd be the Bible truth. Prefer? Yes. Prefer not. Yep. Prefer or prefer not. That would be the Bible truth. And so you know what I'm going to say now, don't you? And if you don't, you, as soon as you hear it, you'll say, oh, yeah, here he goes again. There is nothing perceptible about any verse of Scripture, ultimately, apart from its biblical context. The answer to prefer one another, yep, don't prefer one another. Yep. The difference is context. In Romans 12, Paul is commending and commanding that believers love and serve other believers in Christ rather than being self-serving. Consider others in the Lord better than yourself. Put your brother or sister in the Lord above. Don't be self-serving. Serve God's family. In Romans 12, Paul is commending and commanding 
that believers love and serve other believers in Christ rather than being self-serving Christians. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul calls that the mind of Christ and says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself with no reputation and took upon him in the form of a servant, was made in the likeness of men, and being found in servant and form of a man, humbled himself, became obedient to death, even the death of the cross. The whole humbling of Christ to become our Savior because he had us in mind. You and I are to have others in the family of God in mind. Romans 12, 10. In 1 Timothy 5, Paul is addressing pastor-people relationships in the local church as to public ministry, discipline, and categories of responsibility. In this chapter, 1 Timothy 5, Paul says, for instance, instance, that uh, if you can provide for your own needy family member without involving the local church, you must this past week, I heard about a, a multi-million dollar Hollywood star who started a GoFundMe page for her uh, son or daughter's uh, uh, soccer team. And somebody responded to her uh, post to raise money, GoFundMe page for a soccer team. For land's sake, lady, why don't you sponsor uh, the soccer team? Why do you have to have other people? Uh, help you when you got all the money. And of course, she hemmed and she hauled and she eventually found something cute to say. But nonetheless, how stupid for people that have the ability to meet a need, not to meet it, so that the church can have a ministry. Stupid. And uh, 1 Timothy 5 is a chapter that says, you know what, if you can take care of your own, you ought to. And you ought not bring it to the church and you not, ought not uh, burden the church with a need that you can care for yourself. And then if you can't care for it, well, that's a different matter. It's one of the reasons why this church has a benevolent fund. So we can be of help. But nonetheless, in this chapter that's dealing with public ministry, discipline matters, and category of responsibility, Paul is going to raise, at verse 21, the rule of no preference. Paul is dealing in 1 Timothy 5, just before verse 21, with the serious sin of a pastor. And indeed, a pastor can commit serious sin. Paul says that pastors should not be quickly or publicly charged with serious sin until there has been a careful investigation, and godly collaboration. Boy, that's smart. Nobody would last a week in the ministry if it was just about the fact that you were subject just to the things that people say. And so there's a, a good protection for pastors in 1 Timothy 5 concerning not being quick or hasty uh, to bring uh, one of the pastor's heirs to public light. It's a good thing. Yet indeed, if the pastor is found to have committed sin, he, of course, is to be publicly 
disciplined before the congregation. It is astounding to me how many churches, including this one, think they know better than that. So often churches enact themselves to hide and cover the sins of its leadership when the Bible says just the opposite. The Bible says that church discipline is to be prayerfully and carefully carried out publicly in the face of unrepented sin, whether a church member or a church leader. And that there is to be, ready, no preference. There is to be no partiality. You are to treat the pastor exactly the way that you would treat any church member when it comes to church discipline. You now understand why the Bible says in James 2, no partiality. And yet while Paul says in Romans 10, preference. And then in 1 Timothy 5, no preference. James is specifically confronting the way in which partiality within the local church was shown in favor to the rich and in contempt to the poor. And herein then we have three particulars, three interesting little particulars concerning the kind of favoritism, the kind of judgmentalism, the kind of partiality that was plaguing the early church. And we start with three facts. And here they are. Number one, there is in this passage no condemnation of the palatial believer. Now, if I said to you, all you that are palatial believers, raise your hand, uh, most of you would not know whether you should or you shouldn't. So let me explain my word choice. The word palatial means suitable for a palace. The wealthy believer is in no way whatsoever condemned for the fact that he is wealthy. Paul does tell us that not many noble and wealthy individuals come to personal faith in Jesus Christ because of their propensity, because of their inclination to trust in their riches. But we should expect that there to, would be some wealthy individuals active within the family of God wherever the family of God meets. Their wealth should make no difference whatsoever in the way the love of God is expressed to them or through them. If you be palatial, that's okay. That's okay. You don't have to feel bad because God has blessed you. 
You can't be, I feel bad because you have. Rather than have not. You should not feel bad about that. There's no condemnation of the palatial. Secondly, there is no condemnation of the paltry believer. There's no condemnation of the paltry believer. The word paltry, of course, uh, means appearing to be almost worthless. Uh, We should expect there to be among the family of God uh, some that have little to nothing. And it isn't the fact that their poverty is linked to their lacking work ethic or that their poverty is somehow linked to something else that they have not done or that they have done. But rather, their poverty in of itself should make no difference whatsoever in the way that we love God or the way that we express the love of God to them and through them. In the Bible, there is no condemnation for being rich. In the Bible, there is no condemnation for being poor. And in fact, as we said last week, Proverbs says, the Lord hath made both, the rich and the poor. And so we would expect that some of God's people have a lot. And some of God's people don't. And the difference cannot be all explained on the basis of American capitalism. And while I appreciate American capitalism, and I appreciate the fact that we live in a country where that if you work hard, you can usually make your way. I have to tell you, as a pastor, I've known people that have worked hard and not made their way. And chances are you know some of them too. And so you need to be careful because we don't put American capitalism on the same plane as God. And God said he made rich and poor. And then, of course, James 2, especially 1 to 4, does condemn, does condemn, without apology, the pitiful believer who, unlike his or her Lord, shows partiality. Such treatment of your brothers and sisters in Christ is not just a matter of bad manners or bad hospitality. It is, in fact, wicked. You'll be shocked in coming weeks to hear the word of God tell you how wicked it is. It is likened to some of the worst sins you could name. Treating the rich believer with favor. Treating the poor believer with contempt violates God's word and way. Class distinctions are not allowed in the company of the saints. Believers are taught of God not to judge based upon appearance, but rather to judge righteous judgment. We want to be living a life that is indeed true to our Lord. And to do that, we need to know how to give preference and not give preference. How to righteously be partial righteously. And how to live 
impartially as it comes to the gospel of Christ and the opportunities that we all have before the Lord our God. We want to be living a life that is true, and that life is a life of sweet dedication in following our Lord. Father, thank you this morning for an opportunity to continue in the text and to think some more upon this important command for thy people. Thank you for each and every person that is here. And as we sing our final prayer, help us then to present ourselves before you for life to be lived, for your honor and your glory. For we do pray in Jesus' name and for his blessed sake. Amen.